Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. The slow, arduous road back to relevance continues. The Mets sweep the Arizona Diamondbacks. Let me say that one more time because that is still crazy to think about. The New York Mets who hit another rock bottom about six days ago when they lost that Friday night game to the San Francisco Giants. They have somehow rattled off five consecutive victories, including shutting out a team that had not been shut out all year long and sweeping the first-place Arizona Diamondbacks. And maybe the craziest part is that the exclamation point of this series against Arizona featured probably the most stress-free Mets game We've watched all year long because from beginning to end, this was an ass whooping. I mean, this was a absolute no question ass whooping. So it's a very happy edition of Rico Bronia as the Mets are red hot. They're the hottest they've been in over a month. Should we give credit to Pete Hoffman's beautiful bald head? Maybe we have to. The man shaved his head. On Friday, the Mets proceeded to then have their worst loss of the season, or at least one of their worst losses of the season. We figured, boy, that losing of the hair made no impact. But I guess it needed like 24 hours because then on Saturday and Sunday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, the Mets rattled off five straight wins. So it was like a delayed reaction, Pete, but the bald head has gotten the Mets hot. Congratulations. Well, well, thank you. And I have to say that, I didn't realize I had to go to a game for it to go into effect. So ah. I went. I went to the sat. I didn't go to the Friday game. I went to the Saturday game, and that's what jumped. That, that kickstarted everything. Listen, man. Whatever works. <laughs> <laughs> whatever works. It's funny how the bar sometimes changes in a way. Coming into this season, I think all of our bar was go win a World Series. I mean, that was the bar. Go win a championship, especially after what we saw last year. And I think over the last few days and weeks, the new bar has been, can you give us relevant baseball? Because there has certainly been a fear, still exists, that the Mets were going to play a lot of irrelevant games throughout the summer and into the early fall. A five-game winning streak like this at least gives us the hope because they're not out of the woods yet, obviously. They have a long way to go. I'm not joking when I say they got a long way back to relevance. They're still five games under 500, and I don't say that to rain on the parade of the way they've played, we're going to talk about the way they've played. And it's mostly going to be a positive positive podcast because they're winning baseball games. But the reality is they still have a lot of work to do. 
and that they have not ensured relevant August baseball quite yet. They haven't ensured, hey, the deadline may be a time of standing still instead of selling. But the last few days have been a lot of fun. Obviously, the first two games featured a lot of stress. We did an instant reaction to the middle game of this series, if you missed it, the incredible comeback with the Alvarez home run and the Mark Hanna triple. So we'll touch on the opener of this series in which Max Scherzer drove me nuts on the 4th of July. We'll get into the finale of this series. We'll look ahead to the final series before the All-Star break and our evaluations on this team as we march towards the, the break, which is maybe coming at a bad time because the Mets are red hot. They don't need to be cooled off with four days of sitting. But let's go back to the opener of this series because the Mets responded after that brutal Friday loss to the San Francisco Giants by getting themselves quality wins on Saturday and Sunday. But now the test began because now you go into a three-game series against the team sitting in first place, against the team 15 games above 500, and against a really good offensive baseball team. And I think that's the thing you have to keep in mind. The New York Mets came into a three-game series against a baseball team that was averaging five runs per game. And think about what the Met pitching was able to pull off. Max Scherzer was actually the weakest of the starters, but we'll include him in this. Why not? I'll try to be fair. Max Scherzer, the Met bullpen, Kodai Senga, David Robertson, and essentially Carlos Carrasco held the Arizona Diamondbacks, who, again, are averaging five runs a game. The Mets held them to five runs in game one, so right around the average. One run in game two, and then a shutout in game three. So the Diamondbacks scored six runs in three games against a Met team whose pitching has been dreadful all season. The Met bullpen allowed one run in the five innings that it pitched. But that's the big number. The number five should jump out at you. The Mets only needed to use their bullpen for five innings in a three-game series. And when this series began on Tuesday after the off day on July 3rd, I think one of the issues from that first game was how Buck used the bullpen. And I'm actually going to defend him a little bit. So Max Scherzer, and I don't want to spend too much time killing the guy, but Max Scherzer gave you the typical Glavini performance in which we're going to hand you a lead, Max, and then he's going to immediately hand it back. And what we saw Tuesday was such an example of that in the most extreme way. He gives up a home run in the first inning to Corbin Carroll after striking out the first two batters. So typical of Max. They're down one nothing. The offense can't figure out Scott Davies. And then finally, they put together a really big fourth inning when Starling Marte, behind in the count, hits a bomb of a three-run home run. Looked like it was going to be a frustrating inning that wasn't going to go anywhere. And Marte hits that bomb. For whatever reason, Starling Marte has had great success at Chase Field. And I'm feeling good. Fireworks are popping. The Mets have a three-to-one lead. Max Scherzer is handed the baseball back with a two-run lead. And with two outs and nobody on in the fourth inning, my ass is not even that comfortable on the couch. I had just gone up. I would got myself a frozen drink. I sit back down. And he gives up back-to-back home runs to Christian Walker and Lourdes Scorial. Because this is who Max Scherzer is. He'll strike a guys out 
but he'll also give up a ton of home runs, especially when he's just been handed a lead. So the three to one lead lasts 35 seconds. An inning later, Brandon Nimmo hits a home run, and he's been on some kind of power surge recently. That was his 13th home run that he hit on Tuesday night or Tuesday afternoon, whenever the hell the game took place. And what does Max Scherzer do? Two outs and nobody on against the bottom of the order. Alec Thomas hits a ball to second base that I agree McNeil should make the play. You want to put this on Jeff McNeil? That's fine. But after Jeff McNeil can't make the play, Max Scherzer still has a chance to get that third out and keep the one-run lead. And what does he do? He walks Padromo. What does he do? He gives up an infield single to McCarthy. What does he do? He walks Corbin Carroll with the bases loaded. By the grace of God, he struck out Christian Walker to get out of that fifth inning. And that was what was so frustrating about his performance. Like the final line of six innings, four runs is mediocre in its own right. But to give back two leads in back-to-back innings, and both of which came with two outs and nobody on, it, it just, it was like a cloud that hung over the rest of the game. I got to be honest with you. I mean, I was thrilled they won, and we'll get to the dramatics at the end, but it just pissed me off because you're an ace. You know, I, I get he hasn't been great, and he's not pitching like the dominant guy he was five years ago or even three years ago. But what I expect when you hand it a lead is not to flush it immediately. And he's done that consistently all year. And that's why Keith Hernandez, who I love, said something during the finale of this series that pissed me off to no end. He was talking about Senga. And he said, yeah, you know, Kodai's got seven wins. You know, Max is eight and two. Boy, Max just goes out and finds a way to win. That was his quote. Max goes out and finds a way to win? No. I don't care what his record is. You can take the the win-loss record. I mean, you talk about the most meaningless stat in baseball, and it's always been the case. Now it's accepted. The win-loss record of a pitcher means nothing. If you've watched watched Max Scherzer this season, we've seen him blow leads so many times, and you're telling me somehow he finds ways to win? Like it's some kind of miracle? The only reason Max Scherzer didn't blow the third lead in the opener of this series is because they took him out in the seventh inning. Like when the Mets scored the two runs in the seventh on the Francisco Alvarez, absolute bomb, 470 feet, whatever it was to give the Mets the lead, Scherzer didn't have a chance to blow it in the seventh because they took him out from Brooks Raley. So I, I, it's weird things that bother me. But hearing Keith Hernandez, who's a smart guy and he watches just about every game, for him to say, Boy, at Max Scherzer, he finds a way to win. No, no, it's the opposite. He finds a way to blow leads. But the Met offense, to their credit, came up big in this game. Because even after blowing a 3-1 to lead and blowing a 4-3 to lead, I mentioned it, Francisco Alvarez, and little did we know he was setting the tone for the entire series, hitting a home run in every single game, hits this bomb of a home run against former friend Miguel Castro, and he did it behind in the count. But what was so valuable is that the Mets added on. And I thought that was a big deal. In the eighth inning, they draw a few walks. They execute a double steal. And D.J. Stewart, of all, I'm I'm sorry, yeah, was it D.J. Stewart? Yeah, it was D.J. Stewart because he came on as a pinch runner in inning earlier. That's how he got this at bat. Came through with a sack fly. That off the bat, I thought was going to be more. I thought it was going to be like a bases-clearing double. And then in the ninth inning, 
two outs, runner in scoring position. Francisco Lindor comes up with a clutch RBI double. And when you're making a game a three-run lead and a four-run lead, we know as Met fans, you're damn right we need that. We're going to need every freaking run we can get. Even though Raleigh got through his seventh and Adovino got through his eighth, you just knew those insurance runs are going to be necessary. And then we get to the ninth inning. So I had a disagreement with Joe. I've been doing a few of the shows this week with my former partner. And he'll always be my uh, longtime radio partner, Joe Beningo. And Joe's complaint in the ninth inning was, hey, don't F around. And by the way, I totally understand his point. That's why I'm going to put it out there, even though I disagree with it. Joe said, don't mess around. Every game is big. You're just coming off an off day. Just go to David Robertson with a four-run lead in the ninth inning. Just do it. Like, don't, don't F around. And there are times where I'd agree with that. But I think because you're playing six straight games, you may need David Robertson every single day if you're playing close games every day. I've got a four-run lead. Let me see if I could just get these last three outs from Drew Smith or even Trevor Gott, who they just acquired. And we'll talk a little bit about that trade in a bit. You know, whoever you want to go to, I get having Robertson in the holster just in case, but trying to steal those three outs because you have a four-run lead. If it's a three-run lead or a two-run lead, no, I I get it. It's different. With a four-run lead, I'm willing to gamble because I know that in the worst-case scenario, I'm still going to use David Robertson. And I can still put the fire out, which unfortunately is exactly what happened because Drew Smith gives up a hit. Uh, He gives up a, a, the walk really was the big one. You know, he gives up a leadoff hit to Nick Ahmed. All right, it happens. He gets the next two outs, including a diving play by Nemo. But the one thing you can't do is walk Dominic Fletcher up by four runs with a runner on first and two outs. And once he does that, I agreed with Buck. Okay, I gave you the shot. Now I can't mess around. I got the tying run on deck, which makes it a save situation. I I got to go to my big guy. And unfortunately, David Robertson wasn't his sharpest because he gave up a hit to Corbin Carroll. He issued a bases loaded walk to Christian Walker. And it set up this moment that I think we all feared. You know, when Lourdes Gorial's up there with the bases loaded and all of a sudden it's a three-run game, did we not all envision Gurriel hitting a game-winning grand slam. I did. And and by the way, if he did, I stand by what I just said, which is I got a four-run lead. I can't use my best reliever every effing day. Like, there has to be days where I try to hide him. Now, again, I'm going to use him if things get dirty, which they did. So it's not like I'm saying I'm not going to use him. I'm saying, let me just see if I can get these three outs without him. And unfortunately, they couldn't, and they had to go to David Robertson anyway. Well, this is the this is the time where you do miss Edwin Diaz. Edwin Diaz right here would be because you would – the way Robertson's been pitching, you would have two pitchers in late innings to be able to, like, you know, go back and forth and use Diaz here and there and have – you don't ha- you don't have that right now, and that's where he this Diaz you miss the most right now. They are an arm short in the bullpen. Like if this season continues to 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 move in the better direction of them winning games, and we're breaking down, hey, what do they need to get better? What do they need to enhance this team? It's a bullpen arm, and I think we said that a year ago, and then it turned out to kind of morph into maybe they needed a bat 
and they never really got a bullpen arm. They got Michael Givens, and even though Givens wasn't good, the bullpen never derailed the Mets. So as much as we screamed about it, that turned out not to seal their fate. But when you look at them right now, they're, they're a bullpen arm short. And I think going into the season, they were probably a bullpen arm short. And then you lose Edwin Diaz, and you move everybody back an inning, which, yeah, basically affects them every single night. You're right. Like, every time they play a close game, you're talking about one other arm that you could have had. With that said, they won the game. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, despite all the negatives that come out from this game, the bullpen, having to go to Robertson, Drew Smith sucking, everything I said about Max Scherzer, the reality is the Met offense went out there and scored eight runs, and they won a baseball game. End of the day, they won a baseball game. End of the day, Max Scherzer, even though he blew two leads, gave him six innings. It wasn't beautiful. It wasn't ideal, but you only needed nine outs from your bullpen. And even though they used four guys to do it, they got it. The the other thing about this offense that I find fascinating, if you look at where they're ranked right now, they're about eighth in the National League in runs scored, which is not, not good, not nearly as good as they were last year. But they are averaging about four and a half runs per game, a little over four and a half runs per game, which is a respectable number. What's so odd is how they're doing it compared to last year. They hit a ton of home runs. And a year ago, when we looked at this offense, we saw a high batting average, low power offensive team. And this year, it's the absolute opposite. They have not hit for a high team batting average, but they hit a ton of home runs. Now, why do they hit a ton of home runs? There is an individual specifically that has caused that change. And this series against the Arizona Diamondbacks, if we ever look back on it months, weeks, or even years from now, which I doubt because it means this season went somewhere special, we will look back at this three-game series as simply the Francisco Alvarez series. Because a year ago, and we talked about it so much, especially the offseason, They got no power from catcher. Zero. Zero. James McCann, Tomas Nito. I do think Patrick Mazika hit an occasional home run, including a game winner, which I don't want to ignore. But they got no power from the catcher position. And now, from Francisco Alvarez, they get a freaking home run every game. He's hit 16 home runs. So to go along with Alonzo, who, despite his recent slump, broke out of it the finale of this series, but is having a great power season, while his average is way down, OPS is way down, guy could hit 50 home runs, and that was with an IL stint. And Lindor is having an incredible power season. Lindor could hit 35 home runs. So Lindor, Alonzo, you throw in Alvarez, and how about Brandon Nimmo? I mean, Brandon Nimmo has been a power machine. He's at 13 home runs. So their offense overall is not as good as it was last year, but they're they're very different in how they're scoring these runs. They are certainly a power team, and God forbid you were able to, able to mix the power of this year with the batting average of last year, we'd have ourselves an elite offense. <laughs> it's basically, we, we'd have a team scoring five runs per game. Uh, maybe they'll get there, but they ain't there yet. That's for sure. I mean, they're close to the five runs per game right now anyway. And again, like we talk about this, like, you know, they're, they're in the middle of the pack. For a team that's been struggling all season long up until this point, especially June, the runs haven't been the issue. It's been the pitching. And thank God 
for the past two nights of near flawless starting pitching. Well, so you're right that the offense, and, and I've always felt this way. We talked about this back in April that I had a lot more faith that this offense was not going to be the issue, but there are days where the offense does nothing. There are days in which they are very frustrating to watch, and game two of this series was one of those days until two outs in the ninth inning. I mean, let's be honest. They were about to lose a one nothing game. They were about to lose a game in which they had three hits, two of which were infield hits. They did nothing offensively in game two of this series, and luckily they woke up before the clock struck midnight with the dramatic Alvarez home run. And we're not going to spend that much time on it only because we did an entire instant reaction to it. So if you haven't heard that, go back and listen to it. We were euphoric. It was recorded minutes after the Mets had the dramatic comeback in game two of this series, the Alvarez game tire, the Mark Hanna triple, the David Robertson one, two, three inning, everything in between. Check it out if you haven't heard it. But the offense did nothing for eight and two thirds innings. You know, let's not ignore that. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives we're consumed by all the what if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun if you're like us then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass or play call each week on alternate routes we'll take a flashpoint in sports break down what actually happened then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused follow alternate routes on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen early and ad free right now by joining wondery plus Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. And when they go into the finale of this series, a game that, should I say they needed to win this game? Look, I said to you the other day, they had four games left, the finale of the series with Arizona and three with San Diego. You had to go win three out of four to complete the sweep against Arizona, to do it with Carlos Carrasco on the mound, to follow up what was the best win of the season, and to do it with the exclamation point that they did. It feels good, and it feels important. And they set the tone immediately. Two outs, nobody on in the first inning. Francisco Lindor rips a triple. Pete Alonso has two, I think, one swing. and It was really one swing in his first at-bat that brought Keith Hernandez to saying, boy, Pete's a mess. Pete's a mess right now. He's just he's discombobulated. 
He's not in his rhythm. He is, he's got to figure it out. Next pitch. Pete hits a 115 mile per hour line drive that skates over the left field fence for a two run home run. Pete goes deep. They're up two nothing. Now I'm thinking, hey, two's not going to be enough with Cookie on the mound. They're going to need about eight in this game. They're going to need about 10 in this game. But Carlos Carrasco, after walking the first batter of the game, put together as brilliant a Carrasco performance as we've seen. He picks off Pedroma after walking him. He pitches a one, two, three second. He gives up this little cheap bloop double in the third inning. And that was it. The only hit he had given up until the seventh inning was a little bloop double that Lindor, I don't want to say he should have made the play. I'll say he could have made the play. And Cookie was getting, you know, weak ground balls to first base. He was getting little comebackers. He wasn't even striking that many guys out, but he was in complete command. And the story Gary Cohen told on the broadcast was crazy to me that Carlos Carrasco, if you didn't hear it, and I'll paraphrase it real quick, that Carlos Carrasco watched an Instagram video of, I think it was Pablo Lopez, the former Marlin, the current Minnesota twin, the man infamously traded for Luis Arise, in which Pablo Lopez was showing his slider grip. And Carlos watched it and said, huh, that's interesting. I'm going to try that. And he tries that in his bullpen session. And over his last two starts, his slider has been amazing. So Pablo Lopez, my man, I love that guy. The Mets always killed Pablo Lopez. For all the people we talk about who are Met killers, and there's a lot of them. I mean, we could do a whole, we're going to do a podcast about Met killers. That's an off-season pod. There's a handful of guys, there aren't many who are good players, who for whatever reason the Mets own. And Pablo Lopez was one of those guys when he was with Miami. So Pablo's the gift that keeps on giving because now somehow he's turned Carlos Carrasco into a, you know, a superstar in his last two starts. He was great. He was efficient. He was at 76 pitches after seven innings. The game was a blowout. So Balk could have played around. You knew that he wanted to get Trevor Gott in this game, which I had no issue with. But Cookie really could have gone nine because even though he threw a few more pitches in that eighth inning, 96 pitches after eight, if you wanted, Carrasco could have finished the job. He didn't, not a big deal, just an utterly brilliant performance by Carrasco that follows the brilliant performance by Senga. So for a team that had struggled all year long to get any kind of consistent starting pitching on back-to-back nights against an elite-level offense, Kodai Senga and Carlos Carrasco go 16 innings and allow one run. Incredible. It really is. It's it's a part of why baseball just makes no sense sometimes. It's just, it's illogical. I mean, it's, does anybody think that Carlos Carrasco was going to come out and throw eight scoreless against the Arizona Diamondbacks? Who the hell thought that? Meanwhile, Max Scherzer is going six deep, giving up four runs. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he's the weak link you know for, <laughs> for for as well as the Mets pitched in this series and I'll include the first game even though they gave up five runs because look six runs in three games against the team scoring five runs a game it's pretty good uh, but Scherzer was the weak link Kodai Senga Carlos Carrasco they were the strengths but the offense was really the strength and the guys we got to give credit to let's start with Lindor obviously we shouldn't gloss over it Francisco Lindor put together on Thursday 
one of the great single game offensive performances you'll see. Man, it just honestly doesn't get much better than five for five with two triples, a home run, and two singles. So he gets that triple in the first inning. That was the triple where the ball boy had to jump out of the way. It bounced around the right field corner, and Lindor got the third base great. The second triple he got, and I swear to you I'm thinking this, came with one out in the third inning. The Mets are up 2 nothing. So obviously getting a third base is huge because you can score on and out. But he hits the ball to left center field, and as that ball was traveling up the alley, I swear to God my thought is he may want to stop at second. He set up for a cycle. Like you've, you've already got the triple. Stop at second. You got the double. But Lindor is just busting through. And it was actually a pretty close play at third base. That's when the third base umpire, Lance Barksdale, decided he didn't want to bother giving us a call. Like, didn't do anything. Just kind of stared at third base. But I was thinking as Lindor is dashing around the bases, eh, you may want to hold up at second. But I'm glad he didn't because, you know what? He was going team first. And the Mets then have that huge inning. Pete Alonso drove him in. Daniel Vogelback had a nice day offensively, ripped an RBI double. Jeff McNeil had a ground rule double. And then Francisco Alvarez behind in the count did it again. Three straight games with a home run. And, and I did not forget, speaking of Alvarez, after we're done talking about this game, I wrote down every home run Alvarez has hit, and we're going to go through each situation. Because I'm telling you, it felt to me like every home run he's been he's hit has been clutch. We'll put it to the test, all right? We'll do that in a little bit. But the Met offense breaks through in that third inning. They chase this Ryan Nelson out of the game, and it was just a relaxing night. It was re- I was having a good time. I started muting, no offense to Gary and Keith, I muted Gary and Keith. I put a Joe Rogan talking about Area 51 on my tablet. <laughs> it was interesting. He had somebody, he was talking to somebody about it. It wasn't that guy, Lazar. I already watched the Bob Lazar one. It was somebody else. So I'm like, this is chill. Like, I'm still scoring the game. I'm watching it. But now I'm like, yeah, I feel good. I'm up 9 nothing. You know what I mean? Like, let me let me see about Area 51. Let me check out the UFOs. Did, so that not there not one moment in time that you feel like this lead is going to go you know, kaput. It's Cookie Carrasco. <laughs> I'm not being serious. No. Cookie, Car- Cookie Carrasco is on the on the mound, on the bump. We don't expect him to go eight innings deep. I don't expect him to go five innings at times. You know, I, I think if at 7 nothing, I felt good. I think if the Diamondbacks had shown any kind of pulse offensively, I'm sure there would have been a little bit of a scare. Like, it would have been easy for me to get scared. But they never threatened. You know what I mean? Like once the Mets broke it open in the third inning, and that's early in the game when it's a seven nothing game, and then two innings later it's eight nothing and it's nine nothing. Arizona never had multiple guys on base in the same inning. Think about that. Like they never put multiple guys on base, which means they never rallied. So yeah, I mean, if they had put together a two on nobody out rally in the fifth inning, I'm sure in the back of my mind I would have said, All right, here we go. Of course, we're gonna sweat this out. Nothing could be easy. But it was, I mean, to the credit of Carrasco and to the credit of the Met offense, because they, again, they piled on, you know, at two, nothing, they didn't stop at seven, nothing. They didn't stop. It's nine, nothing. They did not stop uh, to Alvarez, because obviously this also happened in the game in the seventh inning of this game. Once it was nine, nothing Francisco Alvarez, after hitting the home run, after ripping an RBI single a few innings later, 
got drilled by Jose Ruiz. And Alvarez started to move towards the mound. But let me defend him on this. And I've seen him do this before. Because the first time Alvarez did it, I, I was a little weirded out by it. I saw him, and I forget when he was hit by a pitch, but he was hit by a pitch a few weeks ago. And he took a step towards the mound to where I thought, wow, is he going after the, is he going to go after the pitcher? Oh, is he going to charge the mound? And he didn't. He was just taking a step toward the mound, looked his way, walked to first base. He kind of did the same thing with Ruiz where he stepped towards the mound. The home plate umpire, Trip Gibson, then kind of gets in his way. And you could see Alvarez say, what are you doing? Like, I'm good. I'm not going out there. And because I've seen him do it before, I believed him. Like, Alvarez was not going to go out there and fight Jose Ruiz. Did Jose Ruiz drill him on purpose? Probably. Oh, probably. Because Alvarez hits that game-tying home run. He celebrates like they won the game. And that's my only issue with this stuff is it tied the game. It didn't win the game. You win the game, take your freaking pants off for all I care. You know, you win the game, have the wildest celebration. You won the game, have a great time. When you tie the game, it's like when Lasting's Millage was high-fiving fans. The game was tied. They didn't win the game yet. And, and apparently, according to Tim Healy, Joey Cora talked to Alvarez and told him that and said, Look, you can be enthusiastic, but we didn't win the game. So calm down. And Alvarez took it with stride. Everything you hear about Alvarez is the guy's awesome. He works his ass off. He listens. He he understands. So he wasn't combative about it. Just, okay, good call. But that's not going to stop Lavello and the Diamondbacks from potentially being pissed about it. Final game of the series. Game's out of reach. Seventh inning. Yeah, he probably drilled him. Should Alvarez go out there and beat the crap out of him? Not really. You go to first base and say, fine, whatever. I think there are times to fight. I said that a lot last year. And then there are times to say, whatever. This is a time to say, whatever. This is a time to laugh and say, we swept your asses. I'm going to go walk to first base. I hit three home runs against you guys over the course of these three games. I'm going to walk to first base. Like that, that's sort of what you can do. And that's sort of what they did do. The Mets never retaliated, and it just sort of went away. I don't expect this to continue the next time the Diamondbacks play the Mets. I think it just kind of, it's over. But Alvarez is in a, you know, he gets excited. And so do I. So do we. I mean, how did how did we all react when he hit the game-tie home run? We may have done the same dance at our house when that was going down. I woke my household up. What are you talking about, dude? I was like, <laughs> I, I was like yelling like a kid. It was incredible. And that's, that's the thing, though. Like, you talk about, yeah, he tied the game. It didn't win the game. But you want that energy. You you do want that because it kind of uplifts the whole team. Look, look what Cannon did the next play. He hits a triple, you know, and then, then gets gets driven in and stuff like that. After that, it's like, or excuse me, Beatty, hit, Beatty gets on base right. and then Cannon hits a triple. And score. But the point is that the energy is there that builds the team up. So how are you supposed to regulate that? I, I, I disagree. I understand why the point is you didn't win yet. So calm it down a little bit, but also his energy is sparking the team. He's also being natural with his excitement. I mean, the guy hit a game-tying, two-out, two-strike home run in the ninth inning. It's pretty freaking dramatic. So uh, he's not forcing it. It's not some pre-planned celebration. It's a kid who's excited. I think Alonzo's the same way. Pete's a very excitable guy. 
So when he hits a big game-tying grand slam like he did against Cleveland last month, he almost falls over himself because he's celebrating and he's excited. All right, so Alvarez hit his 16th home run in the finale of this series. I went through, and I, 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 t- I promise you, it did not take very long. This was not a stop my life, this is going to take hours situation. It took me about 20 minutes while my boys were watching B-Movie. Have you ever seen B-Movie? Do you know B-Movie? Bean? B-Movie. It's a movie about bees, and it's got some kind of loaded cast, man. It's a cartoon. Jerry <laughs> Seinfeld is in it. Oh. Gwyneth Paltrow is in it. Chris Rock is in it. It is loaded. Now, I've seen it 500 times because both my boys have watched it 500 times. So when we were watching it for a 505th time and <laughs> Luis Severino decided to serve up batting practice against the Baltimore Orioles, I said, this seems like a really good time to sit down and go through all of Alvarez's <laughs> home runs. Hey, hey so, by the way, real quick, do, do you still want Severino on the Mets in 2024? Boy, I, I have I have really, really whiffed on that one. Woo! <laughs> because... I'll tell you something I said on the fan about this, and I genuinely believed it, and I'm just wrong. I thought Luis Severino was going to be the best pitcher on the New York Yankees in 2023. And I know that sounds crazy now because he's having a terrible year, but hear me out on this. Luis Severino's track record since 2017 was when he's healthy, he's really, really good. He just needs to pitch. Can he stay out there? I figured he will. This is the year he stays healthy, contract year. What a coincidence. And he has been mostly healthy, but he's been terrible. And we haven't seen Luis Severino pitch like this since 2016. So I absolutely take my L on that, but it's stunning. Uh, To me, it's stunning. Again, look up the numbers if you don't believe me. Anytime he's pitched, which has been rare the last few years because he's always been hurt, he's always been effective. But whatever, that's that's for a different day. Say here is Alvarez's home runs. April 23rd in San Francisco, the Mets are trailing four to three, and he hits a game tying home run against Tyler Rogers. How about that? That was his first one of the year. Game tying solo home run in the sixth inning. Mets would go on to lose the game five to four. May 9th against Cincinnati, down three nothing against Luke Weaver. Two outs, nobody on in the third inning, hits a solo home run to make it three to one. Okay, I mean, you're getting back into the game. I would say that's a fairly clutch home run. Uh, same day, later in the game, the Mets are down 7-1. He hits a solo home run. Okay, whatever. You're trying to come back, not very clutch. Not that that's negative. I'm not saying it's negative to the non-clutch home run. Just it doesn't fit the clutch criteria. May 17th, Tampa Bay Ray City Field, down 5-2 in the ninth inning, two outs. Game-tying three-run home run against Jason Adam. So we're up to two now that are no doubt about clutch home runs. This one's interesting because I don't know where you want to put this one. May 19th against Cleveland, they're down 5 nothing in the fifth inning. He hits a solo home run. The Mets came back in that game. That was the rally against Cleveland when Alonzo hit the grand slam. So a home run down 5 nothing doesn't feel like anything, but it actually began the rally and got the Mets hot. Now we go to May 24th in Chicago against Marcus Stroman, who may well win the Cy Young this season. It's a 0-0 game, top of the third inning, hits a two-run home run. Mets go on to lose the game, 
but he gave them the lead in the third inning. May 27th in Colorado, the Mets are down 6-3 in the sixth inning, and Francisco Alvarez hits a game-tying three-run home run against Jake Bird. That's a game they'd go on to lose. So game-tying home run, three-run shot, sixth inning. That certainly fits. June 7th, now these home runs are going to piss me off. has nothing to do with him. You'll understand why. June 7th in Atlanta against Charlie Morton. Up one nothing solo home run to give the Mets a 2 nothing lead in Atlanta. They would eventually give Max Scherzer a 4-1 to lead that he would blow. I think that's clutch. He's in Atlanta taking on the Atlanta Braves. Who knew the Met ace would blow it? Next day, June 8th against Spencer Strider, up 6-5 in the fourth inning, hits a home run to go up 7-5. Later in the game, up 9-6, hits a solo home run to go up 10-6 in the sixth inning. Another game they would blow and lose. June 10th against the Pirates, up 3-1 in the eighth inning, insurance home run against Colin Holderman to make it 4-1. July 1st, at home against the Giants, 0-0 game in the third inning. He hits a solo home run. To go up one nothing turns out to be the game winner. They win four to one. July fourth against the Arizona Diamondbacks, four four game, game winning two run home run, top of the seventh inning to go up six four. Mets obviously win the game eight to five. July fifth, Andrew Chafin down one nothing, top of the ninth inning, down in the final strike, game tying home run, and then obviously the one he hit in the finale of the series, July sixth, that put the game away. Four of his 16 home runs are game-tying home runs. Three of the 16 home runs are game-leading home runs. Three cut into a deficit, six added to a lead. But think about that. Seven of the 16 home runs either tie a game or gave the Mets a lead. These home runs have not just been whatever. They have mostly been clutch home runs by the young Francisco Alvarez. This is why I'm still – listen, I'm going to take this all positive right now and say that this is why I, I we've been clamoring for him to be up here. Uh, we needed him here. His bat plays so well, and this is the frustrating aspect that I had talked about. I think I even talked about the last podcast too of why it took so long. And I said this, and people have been killing me over it. It felt like the Mets were almost – hiding, burying, whatever words you want to use, but they did whatever possible not to just give this kid the job. They do you mean last year? Do you mean more of last year or more of earlier this season when he was up here, but they weren't necessarily playing him every single day? Uh, I mean, if it wasn't for an Omar Narvaez injury and Tomas Nito, we may never have seen that, that is true, but here's my argument to that. You're you're probably right. So I'm not necessarily arguing that point. It's irrelevant though. Like it doesn't matter. Right. It, yeah, right. yeah. If if Narvaez is healthy, Alvarez is sitting there in triple A, and who knows? Who knows what happens? He may never have come up here. But he was up here really early on because of the Narvaez injury. They didn't push him every single day. We were frustrated for the first few weeks, but he's mostly played. Like he's the catcher. So oh, right. that doesn't even bother me as much anymore because he's been the catcher really most of the season. I mean, he's played 62 games. The Mets have played 87 games. Like he is the bulk of the time catcher. 
Yeah, you know, I, I guess it just bothers me about how they went about it to begin with, too. Even last year, calling up six, six games to go to, he always, I mean, Evan, you talk about the fact that he's come through in seven really clutch spots. How many times has he come up to the bat in those clutch scenarios? I mean, I feel like he's always the guy, especially early on when he started last year, the the, the, first, the first six seasons, six games he played. He seemed to be up in a big scenario. I mean, he just is, he has a knack for those moments. He has certainly had a knack. He's had a great power season. And what's been encouraging over the last few days, this series against Arizona, is he cooled off for a while. He went through a really long slump where he wasn't hitting home runs, where he was four for 35. He never lost it much defensively, though. And I said that about Pete recently, that, you know, Pete broke through and hopefully what he did in the finale of this series, the home run in the first inning, the RBI single in the third inning kind of gets him going. But through all of this, he's been really good defensively. Alvarez went, you know, and you, you heard it during that home run list. He went between June 10th and July 1st without a home run. That's a long time. I mean, that's a, that's a good amount of time. And now they're coming in bunches because he hits the home run on July 1st. And then he goes July 4th, July 5th, July 6th. And hopefully he keeps it going. And he's got a chance to hit 30 home runs this year. I mean, it's absolutely on the table. So I can't get nuts about the games he should have started in April or the games he should have started in May, even last year. Because I don't know if this happens last year. Right now, he's the guy. He's the catcher. He's the everyday catcher. He's impressed everybody. Everybody says, I mean, even Trevor May is out there tweeting about him, a former teammate. And I think his comment was essentially, I'm not surprised by anything. All you got to know is how hard he works. Now, there's no reason for him to say that. So you got a lot of people going out of their way talking about how hard he works. Uh, the trade from a few days ago. So Zach Muckenhern was just one of the many guys who have been up here. One of the many cavalcade of garbage relievers we've seen. The Mets DFA Zach Muckenhern, but because they're willing to pay money, they were able to turn Zach Muckenhern into Chris Flexen and Trevor Gott. Chris Flexen gets DFA'd again by the New York Mets. The first time was a bunch of years ago. Happens again, but the reason they're able to get Trevor Gott is because they're willing to pay the $3.9 million owed to Chris Flexen. And that's the weapon of Steve Cohen. I'm not trying to put Trevor Gott in the Hall of Fame. I'm not telling you he's going to be any kind of reliable reliever. What I am telling you is they acquired somebody for less talent because they were willing to pay that kind of money. A couple of quick things about Trevor Gott. We saw him make his Met debut in the finale of the series against Arizona. Innocuous inning, not much to judge. Mets had a huge nine-run lead. But looking at Trevor Gott's season so far, until his last three performances, he was having a really good season out of the Mariner bullpen. Had a 1.89 ERA. He had one bad appearance out of the bullpen, went on the injured list with some back spasms, had two performances off the IL. Both again were bad, and that brought up his ERA. That, that doesn't mean that we should take those three performances and eliminate them. They were his most recent performances. I just want to put his numbers in context. So did the Mets get something here with Trevor? God will say. He's just going to be another one of those guys who's going to be thrown into big situations, and there's a decent chance we're cursing him out the way we cursed out Jeff Brigham. Or maybe Billy Epler pulled off a surprisingly good under-the-radar deal, but it was powered because of the money that Steve Cohen was willing to pay to Chris Flexen, a guy who is not going to suit up for the Mets. He's already been released. 
Now, there was a roster move made. Danny Mendick was up here for a short period of time. He was sent down, and DJ Stewart was called up. The construction of this bench now makes very little sense because DJ Stewart is a first baseman outfielder. He's a left-handed bat who had good pop down at AAA, low batting average, high OPS, a lot of home runs. He does hit lefties. I want to point that out. His numbers at AAA, he was hitting lefties. With that said, you're still looking at a bench that's going to be exclusively left-handed. That's really what you're looking at. Now, assuming you have Canna on the bench, which you've had a lot of, that's your one right-handed bat. The rest of your bench is going to be DJ Stewart, Omar Narvaez, Luis Guillorme. Assuming Beatty's hammy's okay, that's the reason why Beatty didn't start the finale of this series. It doesn't make a lot of sense because you put yourself in a spot where you don't have those right-handed bench options. You don't have a lot of it. So I, I'm not saying Danny Mendick necessarily needed to be the guy to stay up here. I know the obvious answer is Mark Vientos, who's put up the big numbers at AAA. But then it calls into the question of, do you want Vientos up here as a bench player? Which I think most of us would want him playing every day, which makes the most sense. And Daniel Vogelback, who cooled off so much after his little mental break, Bats fifth in the finale of this series against the Diamondbacks. I'm ripping it on social media. Everybody's ripping it. And then Vogelback gives you a two-hit game, which I'm not complaining about. But you know what two hits for Daniel Vogelback does in a game? It means Buck Showalter's going to start him for a month straight. That's what it means. He has one good game. It means he's out there for the next month and a half. Doesn't matter if he goes 0 for 30. But it's not a knock on DJ Stewart. It's more that they're very left-handed on their bench, and the odd man out is probably Vogelback. Well, let's be perfectly honest, because the, at least DJ Stewart can play the outfield. At least DJ Stewart can play the field, and at least DJ Stewart has a prayer when he faces a left-handed pitcher, something Daniel Vogelback does not. So I hope they change the construction of this roster. Will they? I don't know. I mean, they don't want to call up Vientos and have him be a bench player. If Vientos is up here, he should play every day, which I understand. And clearly, Buck Showalter doesn't want to play him every day. But there's somebody out there. There's somebody out there that maybe, just maybe, Pete Hoffman is saying, Evan, I got the guy. I got the guy you want, the guy you need, the guy who's available, the guy who's sitting there right there for anybody to take. And that, of course, is your guy, Nelson Cruz, who got DFA'd by the San Diego Padres. He's 43 years old. He's not retiring. He still wants to play. I've been reading rumors that the Twins may bring him back, that the Rangers may bring him back. What about the Mets? Hoff, you've been his biggest fan. Even though Nelson Cruz this season for the Padres hit 245 with a 681 OPS, your counter could be better than Vogelback. You want to bring in Nelson Cruz to be that right-handed bat? No, I, I prefer calling up Vientos at this point in time. I don't know. Cruz Cruz hasn't really had much left in the tank. I, last year was bad, too. It's not You're not spending a lot on him. That's fine. But I, I think at this point in time, you could do that. Whatever Vientos and Cruz are, are the same. Well, Vientos is better because he could play a position. Nelson right. Cruz can't even play a position at this point. Hey, can I say something about Vogelback, by the way? Because after the Alonzo home run, Vogelback got up. 
And uh, I got to say, even against righties, he really sees a lot of great pitches, and they just he doesn't offer it. Doesn't offer at all. I mean, yeah, I don't. It, it, you got to give him some credit today. He did have an RBI double. He had another base hit. He had a twelve pitch at bat. I know the strikeout after the Alonzo home run looked bad, but he actually did have a good game. He did. I I give him credit for 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 the hit, and he was yeah that twelve pitch at bat was great, but. I just am confused. It's like watching the kids in Little League when they're just looking at the pitcher like, oh, guy's throwing gas and you don't even offer at it. Like, what is going through his head when he's watching strike one, two, and three go right down the plate? I'm I'm just confused. He is a very, (laughs) very, very, very selective hitter. (laughs) And that's it. I'm trying to put it nicely. Very selective hitter. Too selective. Very t- yes, and and the truth is, despite him having a good, a decent game against Arizona on Thursday, it's over. It, it should be over for him. Where, like, I give you an example, and I know it didn't matter. They won nine nothing, and Vogelback had two hits. The guy who should have been in the lineup over Vogelback was Mark Canna. Mark Canna delivered the game winning RBI triple the night earlier. Canna's not a guy who should just be playing against lefties. That's not. That's never who he's been. Like, he's a serviceable player who can hit right-handed pitching. Now, Tommy Pham has taken the left field job, and he deserves it. I don't think anybody's questioning that. So Pham is clearly the left fielder. But now if you're giving me a choice between Mark Canna or Daniel Vogelback at the DH at-bats, I'd lean towards Canna. Well, I this is this is the thing, Ev. You know, I, we touched on this a couple podcasts ago when J.D. Davis made his comments about, like, returning to the Mets, uh, to the city field, and just, like, how he left the team. His one comment was, after a while, like, I'd get a big hit and I'd sit. There's no – there's nothing that you have to reward people for having a big day, but you can't – you don't allow guys to get in a groove. Well, and look, Canna's a good example of it because we think of the RBI triple, which we should. He got the game-winning hit. He also drew two walks in the game. So Mark Canna the night earlier was on base three times in a night in which the Mets rarely had base runners. He was a very productive player, and the return the next night against Ryan Nelson is you're out of the lineup. So I do think that fits kind of what J.D. Davis said. Let me get to some of your emails, and then we'll preview the Padres series. I took some heat on Monday from Ralph. Ralph writes, Evan, I love you, man. But as Russo used to say, come back to me, Evan. Come back. You were so out there on your last Rico when you started breaking down wild card tiebreak scenarios. Good Lord. On July 3rd, the Mets were eight games out of the final wild card spot and have to pass four teams to get there. You're wasting your breath discussing the other non wild card crappy teams. The Mets have or don't have the tiebreak over. To even broach the subject of tiebreakers with the Dodgers was borderline insane. The Mets are like nine back of the Dodgers. If the 2023 wild card race is decided by a Met Dodger tiebreaker, I will shave Hoff's head myself. Still love you, Ralph. And I was fine with this criticism because, I mean, I'll retort it until Ralph wrote where he's from. Ralph from East Los Angeles, California. So did I anger a Dodger fan? Is that what happened? And look, I'm going to defend myself. I think I have spent the last few Ricos keeping things in perspective. I have. I have not broken down how this team's going to make the playoffs. I have said 
it's a long road back. What I merely said about some of these games and some of these series is that tiebreakers now matter in Major League Baseball because we don't have one-game playoffs, okay? There is no scenario where the Mets and Diamondbacks are tied and there's just a one-game playoff. Season series matter. So in my opinion, these season series now matter more than they ever did. I am merely stating that, and I'm merely reminding you that if you want to make the playoffs, not only do you have to win a crap ton of games to get back to 500 and above 500 and make up a lot of ground, but you may have to have some of these tiebreakers. And I was merely pointing out they don't have it against the Milwaukee Brewers. They do not. And that they may have it against the Phillies or Marlins, depending on their final regular season meetings. And that they don't have it against the Cubs. And they don't have it against the Reds. And they probably have it against the Dodgers right now because, oh, yeah, they won two out of three. That doesn't mean I think the Mets and the Dodgers are going to finish tied. The Dodgers are probably going to win that division, despite all the injuries to their rotation. Like, if I had to make that bet, I'd say they win the division. So I'm merely pointing out what should be reminded to everybody because it is a relatively new format. This is still kind of new to us. Tiebreakers matter. And if we're going to sit here and try to figure out how the Mets can get to 500, how many wins does it take to make the playoffs, who are they going to have to pass, then you have to remind yourself that owning tiebreakers matter. Now watch this. I hope this doesn't offend someone from Philadelphia. The Mets closed the season with 13 straight games against the Marlins and the Phillies. Now that may be relevant because if the Mets are within striking distance of said Marlins and Phillies, those final 13 games will at least leave everything in their hands. With that said, the Mets right now are eight games behind the Marlins in the loss column and seven games behind the Phillies in the loss column. The Mets have a lot of work to do. They have a lot of work to catch Philadelphia. They have a lot of work to catch Miami. They have a lot of work to catch Milwaukee. They have a lot of work to catch the Dodgers. They've got a lot of work to catch the Giants. The one team that they're right there with is the San Diego Padres. And they will get their crack over three games over the weekend. The Mets have already won two out of three against the Padres. So watch this. Watch this. If the Mets win two out of three against the Padres again, They will own the tiebreaker. And that means if by some fluke, the Padres and the Mets finish with the same record, the Mets would have the tiebreaker. So Ralph, you're right about everything you said. I'm a delusional son of a bitch. No, I'm kidding. I mean, (laughs) I'm going to bring up tiebreakers. What do you want from me? Of course I am. Now, let me get to a few others. Mike Dingman writes, Evan Hoffman. What stands out to me most about Alvarez's at-bat when he hit the home run is when he disagreed with the strike call. This is a good point by Mike. He has the presence of mind to take a timeout, calm himself down, and regroup. Then he came back focused and had what I consider the most important Mets at-bat in 2023. That's a good point. Like, if you go back and SNY showed it uh, the other night, I think during game three of this series, he was pissed about the low strike that was called on two and one. So it went from potentially three and one to two and two. He showed his emotion. He called timeout. He walked way away from home plate, took a big deep breath, got back in the box. And then even after the game mentioned that he was bothered by that call. Andrew writes the real reason for the Mets success. Here it is. I have solved the mystery. It is not Pete Hoffman's hair. 
It's Craig Carton. Craig Carton commuting blasphemy and rooting for the Yankees as your partner cursed the New York Mets. And as soon as he left, they've broken the curse. (laughs) That could be it. Jokes aside, starting in mid-June, I kept telling people the Mets were just so good, they had to take a month off to give everybody a fair chance. So the Mets will play 800 ball in July and win a wild card spot and then win the World Series. You heard it first here. It's not a prediction. It's a spoiler. Okay, Andrew. (laughs) As Joe B would say, from your lips to God's ears. Dustin writes, Hope. It was the first game of this series that I texted my Mets chat about being hope for the season if they could win three in a row. After Wednesday night's win and building upon that with Thursday, I feel the Mets do stand a chance to make the playoffs. Thursday, in a way, was also of major importance and maybe more important than Wednesday because all year long, for the small amount of crazy wins they've had, they usually come out the next day flat. It's amazing to see the players and the entire organization seemingly shift their mentality completely upon the turn of the calendar. We're mostly negative, but let us Met fans embrace some positives right now. Alvarez is budding into a superstar right before our eyes. Look, they're playing much better baseball. They've got a lot of work to do. And that was the problem during this losing streak we'd always bring up. The Mets now need a 15 out of 20. They need one of those extended runs. My son Jet said to me, we need to win 10 in a row. That was his line. And every day in breakfast, because he's not staying up for these games, we got that funny little, okay, they won two. We need eight more. Up three, we need seven more. And I look forward to telling him Friday morning, because we are recording this very late Thursday night, saying, hey, five down, five to go. But that's what they need. So it's not to take away what they've accomplished by sweeping the Diamondbacks. But they put themselves in a massive, massive hole. Charlie writes, this team is confusing. I don't want to be buyers or sellers. I feel like this is a strange year where it might be best to keep the roster as is and hope there's a bit of magic to come. Most of us were excited about this team in the beginning of the year for a reason. I'm glad to see the excitement coming to life. Not saying we're back, but I want to roll with what we got. Yeah, I think the likeliest scenario has probably always been You don't do anything. And I think a part of why that makes things easy, even if the Mets go out and get swept by the Padres and and take a step back, is that you're probably not getting massive returns for a lot of the guys you have anyway. So why sell guys off to really eliminate any chance of some kind of miracle playoff run when you're not getting top-level prospects? And, And that's the bar I would have if I'm even having conversations with teams about selling off players. If I'm not getting top prospects that impact me in a major way, then it's not worth it. Then I kind of I kind of roll the die and say, all right, I'm good. I'll stick with what I got. Not that I'm expecting to make the playoffs. Not that I'm expecting to, to go on some kind of magical run. But I think it allows you to be more conservative. The one thing I would say, and it's tough because I, I still don't want Billy Apple to be the decision maker. The bullpen's so bad. If you could find, remember when they traded for Stroman? Yeah, uh, a couple of years ago where it was like, the team's not going anywhere. Why are you trading and adding a starting pitcher? If you could find a bullpen piece that's available now and help you for next year as well, because this bullpen is a, is a shit show. It, it's, I know this isn't going to please you, but that's essentially what they did with God. 
where they got a guy who is controllable next year. So he's a reliever that helps them now, but in theory helps them next year. I know that's not the guy anybody's thinking about. You're thinking about, you're thinking about a manual class. A. that's what you're thinking about. You're thinking about a, a top level reliever. Yeah. I, what Brody Van Wagenen did, and it was, it was smart by the way. It was smart. I wasn't even against it at the time. And I think looking back on it, it wasn't a disaster is he said, I'll improve our team, but it's not a buy in the short term. It's I'll improve our team. And oh, by the way, that guy will be on our team next year. I'm acquiring a guy who's got another year left. So yeah, if that rolls around, that's not buying at the trade deadline necessarily. That's making a trade that helps you now, but also helps you next year. And I think you'd be open to that. It What's going to be very difficult, and it's not just for the Mets, it's going to be for anybody, is right now when you look around baseball, if you say the Mets are in it at six and a half games out, who's out? Like how many teams are sellers? Like in the American League, you've got two clear sellers in Oakland and Kansas City, and I think the White Sox are on their way. I was hoping they'd make a run. That run's not coming. They're 15 games under 500. I guess the only thing they have going for them is that the division is so bad, but even in that division, they're now eight and a half games back. It's just not coming. So I think the White Sox are probably in that group too. So you have those three teams. Then you've got Colorado, Washington, and I guess St. Louis has to get there. I mean, I think the Cardinals are approaching it at 15 games under 500. So it's not, it's not a long list. You know, it's like, are the Chicago Cubs going to be sellers at 40 and 46, a half game behind the Mets? I don't know. I'm not sure if they will. What's happened is that division looks so different because Cincinnati has really taken off. Hey, they're 10 games above 500. They're no longer in first place just because the division's bad. They've won five in a row. They have been truly incredible. So maybe you kind of reevaluate it. So I think the other thing will be how many sellers are there. Now, the team they're about to play is also fascinating. The Padres have gotten a little bit hotter, too, like us. They swept the Angels. I think they've won four out of their last five games. They're sort of in that same spot right now in the National League. You Darvish on Friday against Verlander. Blake Snell on Saturday against David Peterson. And I don't think they've announced who's going to pitch Sunday against Max Scherzer. Scherzer's making that start because they flip-flopped him and Senga. They gave Senga the extra two days. It obviously worked with his eight brilliant innings. Will they use Senga, though? I know the answer is no, but I'm, I'm spitballing here. Would they use Senga out of the bullpen on Sunday? Always an option on that all-star Sunday. He got no game for four days after that. He's probably not making the first start out of the break. So if you want to get creative, if you want to improve your bullpen, Carlos Carrasco should be available for that game too. Why the hell not? Maybe throw an inning. So that could be fun Sunday as the Mets take on the San Diego Padres. But here we are. The Mets playing their best baseball in over a month and we're still five games under 500. (laughs) So we got a long way to go. But good series against Arizona. And it's off to San Diego. We'll give you a podcast right after the series, maybe an instant reaction, depending on how things go. And we'll also have a first half recap podcast, looking back at the first half that was the bad, the good, and everything in between coming up on the Rico Bronia during All-Star Week. You can email us anytime, the Rico B at gmail.com. We appreciate you listening to another exciting edition of Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.